The Ten Commandments, they are God's first revelation of His will for an entire nation of people. And to my mind, they are still the finest examples of moral national law that has ever been given. The Ten Commandments, more readily translated the Ten Words in the Hebrew Bible, uh, as we noted two weeks ago, they are ubiquitous. When you hear the Ten Commandments of anything, you know that somebody means to make that thing memorable. They mean to make those ten ideas important. And when you think about it, it's actually kind of amazing that there are only ten when God's going to boil down what it takes to make a great nation. That there's only ten is kind of astounding to think about. I mean, granted, there are 650 other commands that follow them, but these are the 10 that start the whole thing. And in the history of Exodus chapter 20, which if you want to be opening your Bibles, that's where you need to be heading. In the timeline of Exodus chapter 20, what's interesting about these 10 is that they are the only ones which the people heard from the very voice of God. At that point, after 10, they were too scared of God and they said to Moses, please don't let him talk to us anymore. You go talk to him for us. But these 10 ideas, they heard from the very voice of God and that makes them important. Matter of fact, that makes these 10 ideas very important for us today. I think many of us will have heard it said that the Ten Commandments are no longer binding on us because we're under the New Covenant. The old law has been done away with. Jesus brought nine of the Ten Commandments into His new law, so we keep those. I'm going to go and tell you, I believe that that's true in the most technical sense. But the reality is that these spiritual principles of all ten of the commandments still have a lot of relevance for us today. Even the observance of the Sabbath, number four, there's plenty we can learn from that. There's plenty of that concept, the principle that still applies for us living our lives before God. And so that's why we're studying these Ten Commandments. These ten words that the people heard from the voice of God. Because they are valuable spiritual principles. They're principles that teach us about a free society, about quality family lives, about individual spiritual health. And these ten ideas are still very powerful. Now, my guess is, though, that you would agree with me up to that point, but I bet if you're scanning through the commands and you're looking at it going, okay, we're looking at number two today, that it might not seem like the most relevant of the bunch. The one that says, the one that says... You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." My guess is that that one sounds like it's probably the least relevant for us in our modern time. And yet, you know that I wouldn't have written a sermon about it. I wouldn't be talking about it if I didn't think there were plenty of reasons why we need this second word governing our walks with God today, just as the ancient people did. And so this morning, I want to talk about three facets of the value of this second word for us. 
three facets of its value. Number one, its theological value. Number two, its national value. And then we'll end by looking at its personal value. Three ideas here from this second commandment. Here we go. First, let's talk about what it teaches us about God himself. And maybe the first thing that we ought to do here is differentiate a couple of terms that easily get confused. Because I think to the casual observer, if you start in Exodus chapter 20 and you read the first two commands, it sounds like God just kind of made a mistake and repeated himself, right? Because the first command essentially says, the first command essentially says, don't have any other gods. And the second command, which we just read, essentially says, don't have any other gods. So maybe God just made a mistake. Or maybe he just means to emphasize something, and so he says it twice to really get his point across. That does happen occasionally in the Bible. It wouldn't be that surprising. But I don't think either of those is really the case. What I think is going on here is with these two commands, we get two distinct ideas. And to understand the difference between the two, we just need to see the very simple distinction between that which is an idol and that which is a statue. In the first command... In the first command, God makes his singular identity clearly known when he declares his name and says, I am Yahweh, your God. And the command is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, that command is broad enough in all of its scope to encompass and include the conceptual ideas that hold sway over our hearts. It's the kind of thing that we talked about two weeks ago. And we talk about the gods of comfort and safety that we give our lives to them rather than to Yahweh. Or the gods of wealth and prosperity and we give our lives to them instead of Yahweh. Or the gods of popularity and acceptance and we give our pursuits and our worship to those instead of to God. That's command number one. The second command, though, is about the specific action of making images of deity to be worshipped. The first commandment reminds us that no being but Yahweh, God, may hold sway over our hearts. The second command is very specific as a prohibition on making anything that represents the presence of any God. And so as one one preacher eloquently and succinctly put it, the first command is about who you worship, The second command is about how you worship. And that makes sense, doesn't it? When you look at those two, read it again with me. Exodus chapter 20, this is verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, I think it's interesting Just a little side note to this whole thing. Maybe not a side note, a direct focus, I guess. But I think it's interesting that it doesn't say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of another God. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any God and bow down to that, including an image of Yahweh himself. And so when he prohibits the making of anything that represents a God, he prohibits them from making anything to represent himself. And that's one of the ideas that really makes the Israelites an oddity in the ancient world. You ever thought about how weird they must have been to their neighbors and their religious practices? Because in the pagan way of thinking, I mean, how could you know your gods were with you if you couldn't see them? 
I mean, how would you know that any, any person is with you if you can't see them? So how would you know your God is with you if you can't see them? And, and where would you bow to your God if your God is not in a particular location? You're just bowing to nothingness. That doesn't seem to make sense in the ancient, in the pagan way of thinking. And then think about this. What would you do for your God if you didn't know what kind of God it was? If you didn't know whether your God is a cow God or a tiger God, how are you going to know whether to feed him grass or human flesh, right? Silly as that sounds, silly as that sounds, it is the pagan mindset. And it is one of the many things that makes the Israelites truly unique because they worship Yahweh God. And Yahweh God is unique in the fact that he demands faith of his people. You remember from a couple of weeks ago, we studied with our brother Tack Chumley, and he read to us several times from Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And that has always been what God has asked of his people. He has asked that we are convicted on the fact that he is the only God who exists and yet he remains unseen. Which again, is something that makes the God of the Bible utterly unique. Because when you start to think about the gods of other nations, no other God has really required faith of the people that were subservient to him or her. No other God has required faith. What they usually require is fear, but not faith. Like the Babylonian god Marduk, the head of their pantheon of gods, who is depicted in castings and sculptures from all across the ancient world. He doesn't demand that the people believe in him without seeing. This god is seen everywhere. And he just looks like any average king from among mankind. Any king from history would stand in and be just fine in that spot, right? Because what we want is a God that can be seen. Or take Dagon, the God of the Philistines, the chief God of the Philistines, who bore the image of a fish, probably providing the basis for most of our historical depictions of mermaids and mermen, right? He's served extensively by nations that lived beside oceans and spent lots of time in fishing and sailing. And what does that God do for them? Well, it gives them something they can see. And that's the key in the pagan way of thinking, isn't it? And then the Egyptians. The Egyptians, the god Thoth, based on, uh, on the image of a bird very common along the banks of the Nile River that runs through Egypt. Or even take the Romans, the chief god of the Roman pantheon, Jupiter, the most revered god among, among many for them, who is depicted as both aged and still perfectly strong and healthy. And so what you see is the nobility of age and wisdom and yet the strength and the virility of youth, right? And when you look at all the others, that one kind of seems like a little bit you know, more noble traits to assign to a god. But even at that, even at that, the two elements of aged wisdom and youthful strength are still based on what we can see. So in all of these, in all of these, what you're looking at is examples, examples of things that can be seen and touched 
and, and, and really controlled in some ways by us. The same is true when you look into the gods of the Hindu pantheon. And when you, even when you look into Islam, a religion which detests the very idea of making an image of God, but which uh, venerates holy, holy sites and holy objects uh, as though kissing the stone that you see there at the bottom corner of that building is somehow uh, brings one closer to God. It's just a little bit funny, right? It, it, it all kind of starts to sound a little bit like going to build a bear, doesn't it? <laughs> right? you, you, it's kind of the same idea. You pick out your base idea for a god, right? Just like you go to build a bear. You want a bunny or a bear. You pick it out, base idea. You dress him up however you want him to look. You pick a name for him. You get him a few accessories. There you go, right? That's actually what's happened. And you chuckle. But there is a passage in Acts that mentions a man named Demetrius who made his living, he and a whole slew of other craftsmen, by building gods to order. (laughs) This build-a-god mentality apparently makes for a good business model as well. Now, the trouble with all of these gods, which obviously are not gods, is that they all fit into a typical pattern of something created by us. They're gods created from our own minds based on what we can see and based on the images that we have seen, the likenesses of mankind and fish and birds and livestock. And that represents a marked contrast to the God of the Bible who said to Moses, you cannot see my face and live. But the same God who has made himself evident enough for all mankind to have faith in him. And believe that he exists. And that uniqueness among the gods reminds us of the next reason that this command makes sense. Which is that God is too grand for comparison. And by that I mean that he is too grand for comparison to any single representation. Now God will compare himself to a number of things in the scriptures. He is like a husband who is jealous for his bride. Or he's like a mother gathering, a mother hen gathering her chicks. Or he's like a warrior fighting for his people or a shepherd feeding his sheep. He will compare himself to all of those things. And because God used them of himself, I think we can trust those. But we need to be unequivocal on the fact that all of those illustrations and all metaphors for the existence of God fall so short of a complete representation of who he really is. It's like a magnificent painting of the Rockies or the Alps or the Himalayas or some grand mountain range, right? You take a painting and it represents them and okay, it's faithful enough and it works. But it's not nearly the same thing as the actual Rocky Mountains in all of their scenery and slopes and sheer size. It's not nearly the same thing as the actual, the actual thing. And it's the same way with any illustration. If an illustration didn't break down somewhere, it wouldn't be an illustration. It would be the real thing. And that's the problem, isn't it? That when we try, when we try to think that God can be defined in one dimension, in one illustration, in one image, that somehow we've created a painting or a sculpture that's as good as the real thing. Whether we try to depict him as a strong animal made of very precious metal or or, or as a perfect specimen of mankind, or even as the most unstoppable destructive force of nature that we can fathom, 
in anything, in any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, what we end up with is something that starts to depict some of God. But when we worship it, we limit ourselves so that we will never be able to understand and appreciate all of God. I'm going to go ahead and admit that I think that God will always be out of our intellectual reach. But you can see the danger, can't you? When we limit that picture of God to just one tiny little idea, instead of letting him be all that he is and describes himself as. And so you see the theological value in this, in not confining ourselves to one idea of God, but letting all of it, all of it, shape our understanding of who he is. And when it begins to shape our understanding like that, you'll begin to see how much value it has on a national level as a law for a people. We talked last time in the first command from the Ten Commandments about how God demonstrates that he intends to set his people free. He is the God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and he did that in a way that they never saw his face. Why would we think he's going to change his way of doing that afterwards? That to make a free people... They want to worship a God who is not confined to a particular location. He's not confined to a particular time and place. He's not confined to a particular set of abilities. This God makes them free. And because he is not confined himself. And that therefore makes the people unique among all the other peoples. And I think evidently enough, it makes them a righteous people among all the other peoples. When you compare the image, when you compare rather the God who cannot be seen to all the gods of the nations that can be seen, the gods of the nations, they're just really terrible examples of morality, aren't they? I mean, how many stories from the Greek and Roman gods are about infidelity of some kind, about adultery with humanity, about cheating each other, robbing one another between the gods? This God, though, he cannot be seen. But he is evidently, apparently righteous. And so he makes his people free and righteous people. Which, in the grand scheme of the nations, makes his people, both then and now, a truly special nation of people. Can we grab our Bibles and head over to Deuteronomy chapter 4 for just a moment? Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is a passage that falls right before Moses is going to run through these Ten Commandments again as the basis for a second telling of the law. But even as a predicate to, as a preamble to the preamble, I guess you would say, when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 4, when you start reading in verse 5, he says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. 
You see, the people of Israel were meant to be a very special nation among the spread of nations in their area. Now, they never quite lived up to that. But if they had followed the will of God as he laid it out, as a matter of fact, if any nation today were to follow the will of God as he has laid it out, that nation will stand out and they will be respected for a righteous nation with upstanding moral code and especially a nation that enjoys equality and peace and righteousness. Now, that leads us then to talk this last to talk about this last idea, the personal value of this command for us. And for this section, can we turn our Bibles to Romans chapter one? We're going to leave the Old Testament now. Go to Romans chapter one, where the Apostle Paul makes a, a, a kind of a, a passing remark about the same idea that is encapsulated here in in the second command. Romans chapter 1, can we start reading in verse 18 together? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts and to impurity and all sorts of terrible things. And can you see there how the apostle is talking about people who break the second commandment? When you exchange the glory of the real God, the real glory of the real God for images, for just stuff that we can see. Do you see how dangerous that is? And do you see what it does to them in verses 26 through 31 through that passage? Their lives fall apart. Their families fall apart. Their friendships, their society falls apart. Because these kind of things, changing out our gods, these kind of things can do some real damage. And I think when we see the damage that it can do, it reminds us. It reminds us how much good there is for us. In keeping the principles outlined in the second command. Obedience to this command will set us free from the slavery to other gods. It will set us free from slavery to false ideas and their terrible outcomes. Keeping our mind focused on God in faith rather than by sight. Will keep us free from the slavery of painful relationships. And slavery to the lusts of our own hearts and to the impurity and slander and foolishness that would otherwise consume us. I know how tempting it is to think that God must be just like me. I mean, he must think the way that I think because any rational being would think the way that I think, right? That's the temptation for all of us, I'm sure. At least it is for me. And so it's tempting to think that God must value what I value and yet, if he doesn't, then that's, that can't be what God is really like. I know how tempting that is. But I also know 
that when we start messing with what we believe about who God really is to make him fit our likeness, rather than allowing ourselves to be made in his likeness, and we get into some really, really dangerous territory that will always, always enslave us to an oppressive, uh, to an oppressive way of life. And that leads us to the second one here, which is, if you're afraid of that happening, the good news is, if you keep this command and the principles there, it frees our hearts from the fear of punishment. And you see that back in Exodus chapter 20, in verses 5 and 6 there, and when he talks about, he talks about this command. He says, the Lord visits the iniquity on the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. But in the next phrase in verse six, he says, but he keeps his steadfast love. He gives his steadfast love to thousands who love him. Now, you probably want to know here just a little linguistic detail of the Hebrew that when it says that he visits iniquity on the third and fourth generation and then steadfast love to thousands. It actually means two thousands of generations. And so the contrast there between the two is actually God making a pretty powerful point. That here is punishment that you want to avoid. You want to avoid this punishment, okay, for three and four generations. But if you do that and you seek this God, he will bless us for thousands of generations. And that kind of idea gives us freedom. It's the very simple kind of freedom of a person who drives with confidence because he always drives the speed limit. He's not worried about getting pulled over and getting ticketed. He's not worried about a punishment because he's just doing the right thing. And if we keep this command, then we get to, we get freedom from the fear of the punishment that God promises for those who break it. And then thirdly, thirdly here, we enjoy the freedom of unrestricted faith. I'm not sure that's the best word to use there, but it's the best one that I could come up with this week. Unrestricted faith. You know, faith that is tied to something that is ever-changing, malleable, that's stuck to one location, that can be moved around, that can be stolen, all that sort of thing. That's pretty tricky stuff. You know, I, I, I heard a great illustration from a preacher that said, you know, the thing about faith is it's not important for its own sake. Faith is important because of what you put your faith in. This is a good way to talk about that, right? He said, there's not much point in jumping out of an airplane wearing a rock climbing harness. Your faith's in the wrong thing, right? You have all the faith in the world in that harness, but this is not going to work. And the same is true when we think about this. When we talk about unrestricted faith, our faith is tied to a God who is unchanging and who is dependable. He doesn't fail us if he's too tired to help. He can't be carried away by an invading army. Our God won't leave you high and dry if you fail to make it to his temple to pray. He, he is with you when you pray. Our God won't be hypocritical and make demands of you that he is unwilling to meet himself. He's not going to do that. Our God is solid and dependable and sure, which means that our faith can be practiced anywhere at all times, among friend or foe, in persecution and in peace, in abundance and in poverty, in pain and in healing. In any and all cases, because our God is not a God of wood and stone and precious metal, our faith in Him is not restricted to things that can be taken, stolen, moved, and that can fail us. Our faith is only restricted by our ability to believe in Him. 
which ultimately leaves us free to appreciate and enjoy the true glorious form of Yahweh God. In Romans chapter 1, the mistake the people make is that they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man. And, and you can kind of see how that happens, right? We want a God that looks like our favorite version of mankind. But I just don't think that's what we really want. What you want is something greater than that. Who won't fail you like mankind does. We don't want just the man upstairs. I don't like that phrase, by the way. (laughs) We don't want a man upstairs that we want to pray to. We want the God in heaven that we want to pray to. And we want that because He is the God who upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the one we worship. And the only limits upon our understanding of worshiping Him are the limits of our own minds and hearts. He is not limited by time and place. He is not limited by needs and shortcomings. And He is not limited in splendor and glory. And so the second word makes perfect sense in all of eternity that you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water below the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. These commandments have a tremendous impact on our lives. They are not a relic of a bygone day. They are principles of eternity. And they teach us how to walk with the God of eternity. My question is for you this morning, are you ready to do that? Are you ready to begin to walk with God? And to walk with a God who cannot be seen and never will be seen this side of eternity. But a God who is there and who is more sure and dependable than any other God you can fathom. Are you ready to walk with him? And if you are, if you want to talk to me or to one of the shepherds about what that means and what that looks like, then we want to invite you to come and let us know about that while we're standing together and singing this hymn.